0: Jesus will either be precious to you or a problem for you. Jesus will either be precious to you or a problem for you. And here's how you diagnose whether he is precious or a problem. If you recognize that you desperately need him, then you will find him to be precious and of supreme value. However, the person who refuses to see their need for him or the person who lives in denial of that need for him finds Jesus to be a problem. They prefer to to not acknowledge that need and to keep him at a distance. So is Jesus precious to you? Or is he a problem for you? The answer to how you come about that question will be found in whether or not you understand your need for Him and whether or not you will come to Him. In Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 32, we find that Jesus works wonderfully in those who know their need for Him. Let me say this again. This is a big idea, a big argument that I'm going to make from our text this morning. Jesus works wonderfully in those who know know their need for him. I'm now going to read Luke 5, 12 to 32. I invite you to follow along silently as I read. Let us see how God's word begins to address us. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts?" Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. but sinners to repentance. May God write these truths of His eternal and good Word upon our hearts this morning. Our sermon texts feature stories that, taken individually, are fascinating, but they function more like multiple verses that, when taken on the whole, form a song of the splendor of Jesus, this great physician A song testifying, singing of the sufficiency of Jesus for those who recognize their need for Him. So we're going to take this kind of verse by verse, making our way through the song. There are four verses, and the first is, it tells us that Jesus is willing to heal those who need Him. Jesus is willing to heal those who need Him. This is in verses 12 to 16. Verse 12 picks up, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, let's pause here. Leprosy, you might be familiar with the term, recognize that it's some kind of skin disease. And in biblical times, it was used to describe a number of various skin diseases, some more serious, some not. But this man seemed to be in the throes of terrible affliction. You see this. Note that he was, as the Scripture says in verse 12, he was full of leprosy. He didn't have a rash on his arm. He was stricken from head to toe. A leper would be a social outcast, a pariah. He likely wore torn clothes. He likely had long, unkept hair. If people started to get too close to him, he would have to cover his mouth and shout out, "Unclean! Unclean!" Warning people to keep their distance. He either knew a life of living totally isolated from others, or he lived with other lepers, totally isolated from those who were healthy and clean. He could not go to public worship. He could not hug loved ones. Maybe those who cared for him and loved him, even if, if, if there were any in the world, they could lead him, leave him food or other necessities at a designated location and he could pick them up. It is possible, perhaps even likely, that the best lodging that he could have would be some form of cave that could reasonably offer protection from the elements. This is what life was like for a leper. And the second part of verse 12 tells us that when this leper, when this man, saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, You can make me clean. Notice it. Notice what he says. He does not say, Lord, if you have the power. He knows Jesus is able. But this leper, this pariah who has not been loved in who knows how long, he falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Note this this is not an appeal to the miracles that Jesus' hands can do. This is an appeal to the heart of Jesus. Saying, Lord, would you be graciously inclined to me of all peoples? Verse 13 tells us Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Beloved Christian, dear brother or sister in the faith, the heart of Jesus towards you is not cold detachment. It is not cavalier disinterest. The heart of Jesus is willingness to draw near to those who need Him. This passage presents Jesus as a great physician, Able to heal. And yet the first place this scene takes us, as we see Jesus who is able to heal those who need Him, is not to see the qualifications, the education, the degrees on His wall. No, we do not see those. We see the heart that He has. You can almost hear the onlookers who would have thought as they watched this scene unfold, they're seeing it, and they're, and they're thinking to themselves, like, is, is, that, is that really happening? Is, that, is, that hap- is this happening as I, as I think it is? Oh, no no, 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 Jesus, do not touch him! But that's not our Jesus, is it? His life all the way to his death was a mission of mercy. Breaking through barriers, jumping over walls, Uh, 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 knocking down those things that would keep others from him. The wonder of the gospel is that he took our great uncleanness, he took our sin upon himself as he bore our sins upon the cross. The last three years has made us all experts in viruses and their transmission from one individual to another. Another. We've known the dangers, we've known the worries of the spread of COVID. This touch for the leper, where Jesus leans in while everyone else pushes away. This is a preview of the future where the curse of death and sickness will not spread, but all things will be made new. And the power behind that curse reversing, remaking of all creation will be the willing heart. Isn't this ironic? The leper, if he were to touch others, if he were to get too close to others, leprosy would spread. Yet Jesus gets near to him and touches him, and he heals him. This is a picture of the reversing of the curse of sin and its effects in the world. But we struggle to believe that Jesus is truly willing to meet our deepest needs, don't we? Whether or not we believe Jesus is willing to work within us is not measured so much in the content of our words, but more in the apathy of our hearts. If your perspective towards the Bible is not submission and welcoming God's transforming work in you through His Word, then that is an example of disbelief in the willingness of God. If you find that your heart is more given to size of reservation, or size of resignation, excuse me, and to distrust in His goodness. If you're more given to those than to fervent prayer, may God give you the mercy in this moment of showing you that He is willing to work in wonderful ways in you and in your church. If you keep fellow Christians, if you keep fellow church members an arm's length away, unwilling to let them know the real you, You are depriving yourself of the body of Christ and the means by which he would reach out and minister to you in mercy. Now the story takes an interesting turn when Jesus told the man not to tell anyone, but to go present himself to a priest and make offerings in line with his cleansing. Of course, Jesus instructed the man in in, in accord with the Old Testament law, but I think there's also something else at play. Do you see where Jesus... Uh, he tells the man to go to them as a proof. You see the end of verse 14 there, as a proof to them. It seems Jesus sent this man to be a witness saying, and, and he wants him to be a proof to all who will hear him, to all who will see him once leper, now clean. As an example, saying there is a man who has come who can reverse the curse of sin and disease and sickness. It is a fitting prayer that God would make us a church full of once spiritual lepers who could testify to the abundant willingness of Jesus to transform those who know their great need before Him. May God give us the gift of proclaiming to our neighbors and to the world, yes, He can make you clean. So this is the first verse of the song Of seeing Jesus' wondrous works to those who recognize their need for him. This first verse is He is willing. The second is that He is capable to heal those who need Him. Moving on to the next story, when I say He's capable, you might think, well, I've seen Jesus heal a leper. There are impressive miracles in chapter four and earlier in chapter five. I guess He is capable. We've seen his power, we've seen his miracles, we've seen his ability to do these spectacular things, and and the danger is that we think that and we miss the focus of this story. The miracles reveal his willingness, they reveal his capability, but follow along as I read in verse 17 and following to see what is meant by his capability. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed, through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sin's are forgiven you this is quite a scene to behold let's pause here for a moment a house full of people men carrying a, their their friend on a stretcher he's paralyzed you can you can picture them like trying to get him through different entr- entrances into the house well let's try the front door oh no nope, the front door didn't work let's try the back door well no we can't get him in the back door if you've ever tried to move a large couch through narrow corners You know the feeling these guys probably felt, but they couldn't turn the couch up on its end. We don't want to dump our friend off of the stretcher. They had to be more gentle. Maybe they tried to get him through a window. Nope, can't do that. And the problem is, everyone else is pressing in in this house around Jesus too. They have their needs. And yet, as this house is packed to the gills, these men do not give up. So now imagine everyone is sitting in this house listening to Jesus teach. Some sitting, some standing. The room is just full to capacity. A fire marshal's worst nightmare. But now imagine you are sitting there listening to Jesus as he's holding court in the middle of the room. And dust starts to fall down from up high. Then larger chunks of dirt and clay start to to drop down. You kind of glance up and, 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 and others start to look up and you start to see a hole is being opened up on the roof. And unbelievably, a stretcher is starting to get lowered down into the room. And now this man is, brought, is literally lowered down right in front of Jesus. And look at what Jesus says in verse 20. When he saw their faith, he says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Do you see that? He doesn't say... Wow, look at this faith. Your body is healed. Rise up and walk. No, Jesus says what? Your sins are forgiven. You. Verse 21 tells us the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, it's it's easy to dunk on Pharisees and scribes. They make a fairly easy target throughout the Gospels. They oppose Jesus throughout his ministry, but this question, they're right on the money with the question. They say, who is this? And then they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Brothers and sisters, understand this. The capability of Jesus to heal those who need him foundationally, at its core, at its base, we're not seeing his miracle power. We're seeing his identity. He is God who can do such a thing. Jesus is asserting his divinity, and he's reorienting the perspective of all who are listening to him. Think about, as I talk about him being able to reorient the perspective of those listening, here's what I mean. You could read this story and you could place the paralyzed man in the center of the room. I I, I, I always want to know what the paralyzed guy is thinking in this whole story, okay? Like, think about this. Jesus in these, he's been lowered through the roof by his friends. You can kind of picture his friends like saying, hey, Bill, Bill, this is a good idea. We're going to be able to do this. And he's thinking to himself, are you you guys sure? You know, know, like, 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 uh, maybe we could try another day, or maybe he was desperate but whatever the case is, he's getting lowered down, and then he's lowered down eventually. Oh, there's Jesus. I'm, I'm down, and there's all these people surrounding us. Here's Jesus. And then Jesus and these religious leaders are going back and forth, and, and maybe Bill is, is thinking to himself, um, uh, uh, guys, hold on a second. Jesus, Jesus um, I, I, I want to thank you for pronouncing my sins forgiven. I really do thank you for that. But do you think we could do something about my paralysis too while we're here? You know, Jesus didn't address the paralysis right off the bat. And here's what I'm getting at. We have a danger in our mind, in our own heart, where we can reduce Jesus to miracle worker. And we can say, okay, Jesus, let's get the paralysis addressed here. which is what we would do if Jesus was solely just a miracle worker. But if he is God, there is something more foundationally at stake, and that is namely, what do we make of him and what do we make of ourselves? Are we willing to see that it is possible that we could have a need for him that is far greater than the paralysis that we have? And are we willing to admit, are we willing to acknowledge that it is possible that he has come to address something far more important about us than even the physical lameness that our bodies feel? and that being our spiritual death. On one level, this scene is about healing from paralysis, a breaking of the effects of our fallen world, but on a lower level, it's about forgiveness of sins, a breaking of the actual curse of our fallen world. So you have the effects of, of the curse, sin, and, and the, the effects of sin and its rampant run throughout our world, Now, hear me saying, I'm not saying somebody that's paralyzed or somebody that has been diagnosed with some terrible illness or sickness that you can trace like, oh, well, there's a sin they committed that got them in that boat. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that all of the evils that this world experiences, all the things that bring death, all the things that bring uh, 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 sorrow and, and despair in our world, whether physical illnesses, whether natural disasters, whether anything in between, all of these have a root in the fall. Traced back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. These can be traced back to a root that Jesus came to address. The world has begun to spiral out of control because sin has entered through Adam and Eve. And all of us are cursed by sin. So we try our best to correct these wrongs, to address these evils. But if we will not see the needs of our own hearts. Then it is as if we have some terrible sickness like cancer. And we're trying to treat it with Tylenol. The deeper thing that Jesus can address is this enmity that man has towards God. Born of our sin against him. And Jesus addresses and forgives that as he makes the man new. And as God alone, he is the one who's capable to do this. So the scribes and Pharisees in verse 21, they say, who speaks these blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus heard their thoughts, he answered, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Jesus at this point is just showing off, right? Okay, you don't think I can forgive sins? You you, You need to see a miracle in order to believe my power, in order to believe who I am? Okay, rise and walk and go home. Paralyzed man is very grateful for this disagreement that arose between Jesus and the Pharisees here. I say that jokingly, but interestingly if you look at verse 24 jesus uses a title for himself that helps us to understand all of this that is going on you see how he describes himself he describes himself as the son of man that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins that that title son of man it, it, it echoes it takes our minds back to the old testament particularly the book of daniel where it describes one who would come like a son of man who would be given dominion glory a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages would serve him. Jesus is asserting that he is the son of man, that he is the Lord, he is the king, he is the judge of all peoples. He has the ability to forgive sins, he has the ability to heal a paralysis, and all, and his coming has come to inaugurate a new kingdom and it has come to birth a new creation. And so you might be fairly new to the Bible fairly new to learning about Jesus, and and what this passage forces us all to do, if this is the boat that you're in, and all of us as we're reminded of this, is to reevaluate what you understand about Jesus as well as yourself. Jesus, the Bible, Christianity, these have a way of speaking to what we believe our needs are, and to reorienting our perspective. Now, it's easy to dismiss the Jesus that we have concocted in our own minds, And yet what this passage forces us to do is to closely evaluate the real Jesus of the Bible. Because in seeing the real Jesus of the Bible, we're in this stage in the Gospel of Luke where seeing the real Jesus forces us to see the real ourselves. And then ask whether we will acknowledge our great need for him and find him wonderful, find him precious, or will we keep him at arm's distance and he be a problem for us? Church family, this is why we keep the gospel at the heart of our life together. We live in a world and we have a human nature where we try to solve the cancer of the human condition and the fallenness and the curse of our world with band-aids and ice packs, but we have the life-giving touch of Jesus that is at work within his people. So I pray, I ask you to join me in praying, God, make us a people who never tire or lose our sense of awe before this Jesus and never try to co-opt Him like the Pharisees would and say, you can't forgive sins. Feel free to heal the paralysis. But no, you can't forgive sins. No, give us this great awareness, this awe before Jesus for who He is. Now we progress more along the line here. We have seen now the first two verses of this song of the wondrous works of Jesus. We've seen he is willing of heart. He is capable to address our deepest need, which is forgiveness of sins. And now we see a third verse to this, and this is that Jesus is glad to give new birth to those who need him. Verses 27 to 30. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Tax collectors were an interesting lot in Israel. They were despised by many, far more than even you or I might despise the IRS. They were a devious bunch. They extorted common Israelites in the name of serving the Roman Empire. Tax collectors were Jewish people who had made agreements with, Rome would set a tax and say, I expect you to deliver this much, and then tax collectors would sign that contract, sign that agreement with the Roman authorities, and then they would just go start taxing their fellow Israelites, their fellow Jews, and start bringing in, bringing in, bringing in, bringing in all the taxes, and say they uh, uh, brought in 200 percent of what the, of, of what Rome had set as the Uh, as the line for them, they would send to Rome what was due to Rome and they would keep the rest for themselves. Committing extortion. Stealing from their fellow Jews. And the vileness of it was that these were Jews committing this against Jews in the name of service to their Roman occupiers. They were despised by their people. Their association with the Romans made them spiritually unclean in the eyes of their fellow Israelites. They were not allowed in the synagogue. And Luke records to us that this is the kind of person that Jesus went to and said, follow me. It adds color, right, to this passage. We've seen three people with terrible needs beyond themselves that only Jesus can meet. A leper who cannot heal himself, a man who's paralyzed who cannot get up and walk, and now a tax collector who is so spiritually uh, 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 undone that Jesus must go to him and speak tell him to follow him. We think the miracle is the healings, but it's just as much a miracle when Jesus commands somebody who has previously had no use for him to now rise up and follow him and to leave everything behind. Verse 29 tells us that Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So there's a celebratory feast in Levi's home, full of tax collectors, other sinners with Jesus. You cannot help but marvel at it. Jesus works wonderfully in those who know their need for him. This is how someone becomes a Christian. They're going about their business, their life. By the wonder of God's grace, they are brought to encounter Jesus and then they hear this beckon, this call of Jesus, hey, lay down everything and follow me. Brothers and sisters, allow this passage to gas up the tanks of your prayers for the conversions of non-Christians in your life. If you were to ask the, the people of Israel to write down a list of the top 500 kinds of people that would be primed for uh, 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 to be made right with God. Tax collectors would not have made the list. And yet these are the ones that Jesus goes to and says, follow me. Who are the people in our lives? Who are the people in our neighborhoods? Who are the people in our spheres of influence that we would have written off already? And believe, now no, no, no. no. They're not really the spiritual type. Let this put gas in your tanks that that Jesus can do this work. Let us be very careful that we don't disqualify others from the possibility of conversion to Christianity because we have determined them beyond the reach of God's grace. Let us also be careful as we read this. We see Jesus going and feasting with tax collectors, feasting with the sinners. We're aware that perhaps for some of us, we've been followers of Jesus, we've been Christians for many, many, many years. And perhaps this passage has started to show you, I'm not quite as aware of my great need for Jesus as I once was. Maybe you in your heart, even now, you need to just say, Lord, I want to sit back down at that table and feast with you. I want to be moved by you. Your word has grown cold to me. Warm it, and Lord, would you impress your smile and your gladness with me upon my heart. Jesus is glad to give new birth to those who need him. Throughout this passage, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of law, they've played a foil to Jesus, questioning, they've objected, they've doubted, and now this brings us to the final point that helps to crystallize the whole picture of the story for us. Really, you could say that these first three things, Jesus's willingness, his capability, and his gladness all serve as the first three verses to the song, and now we have a strange yet important chorus that flows throughout the whole song as we see it again. And that chorus, fourthly, is that Jesus is only for those who know they need him. Jesus is only for those who know they need him. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. In the minds of these observers, they can't reason, they can't understand why this Jesus would eat and drink with tax collectors. How could this gap between them and him be bridged? Well, we've seen Jesus' makeup, his heart, his willingness, his capability, his gladness at redeeming, but here's what we have to understand. Like water that bounces off a hardened sponge, we will not see this Jesus if we are so full of ourselves that we don't know our need for Jesus. I remember back last summer, there was a very dry, drought riddled summer. But there was one evening where we just got a, a blast of like flash flooding. I think two or three inches of rain in an hour, just just the, the heavens opened up. And I was standing in the office next door, and I'm looking out on the yard here where we used to worship outside. And water was, it was a lake. The ground was so dry and so parched that it couldn't absorb the water. It just made it stand up. It was like a swimming pool. It was concrete. It wasn't soil. What Jesus is showing us is to beware of our hearts being hardened to the point that we can't receive those nourishing waters of living, or those nourishing living waters. And how does this happen? We refuse to see our need for Him. We refuse to understand ourselves. We become modern-day Pharisees and scribes. But yet again. As is the case, as we've seen throughout this story today and throughout our study in the Gospel of Luke, we have to carefully read the passage. Because it is in vogue. To say, oh, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to act in a legalistic manner towards others. It is in vogue to not want to be pharisaical while actually making ourselves pharisaical. Here's what I mean. The Pharisee in this passage, the one who refuses to see their need for him. Is the one who refuses to see their sin and repent. Do you see this? Do you see this in verse 32, I, Jesus speaking, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a way in our minds that we celebrate our unworthiness, but we reject our need to be transformed and to grow in holiness. Do you catch catch that? How subtly does that pervade our hearts and our minds in our our cultural moment, in our day? Jesus says He has come to call sinners to repentance. Repentance. And so the mindset that refuses to see one's need for repentance, that refuses to acknowledge one's desperate need for Christ. That is the one that is pharisaical. God, give us eyes to see our need, give us self-awareness to see that the only qualification to see Jesus is to understand our need for him. You've all probably got stories of loved ones or folks in your life you can recall who they seemed very ill and yet they did not want to correct their sickness. Amanda jokes with me whenever she says, oh, I've got a slight headache or something. I say, oh, you better take some Tylenol. You better take some medicine. Go ahead and get that addressed. And I could be over in the next room dying and she'll say, have you taken any medicine? No, no. I refuse to acknowledge it. You know the person who's hawking up a lung, running a 104 degree fever, all signs of terrible sickness. Maybe you should go to the doctor. I don't need to go to the doctor. Bunch of snake oil salesmen. Let us be careful that we refuse to see our sickness and we refuse to go to the physician. A fitting prayer in this passage would be, Lord, help me to see my great need for you. Help me to see that the cross was not a byproduct of your life, but was the point of your coming because I needed it due to my sin-drenched sickness. And help me to run into the light of the gospel, not to stay back in the shadows. And help me, O God, to know that as I run into that light of the gospel, that Jesus Himself is willing to meet me, He is capable to meet me, and He is glad to meet me. But to know if I stay back, He will not be precious to me, but he will actually be a problem for me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus works wonderfully in those who know their need for Him.